All right, here we are again, huh? 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Let's keep going through the letter. This is uh, kind of the <clears throat> tremendous conclusion to uh, chapter 5 here. Again, this is a little bit of a digression that Paul has made, and he's gone on to talk about mainly, uh, overall, a sense of the earthly versus the heavenly. Right? He's uh, talked about suffering on the earthly uh, and the sense of glory in the heavenly. Uh, he's talked about bodies that are earthly that one day will perish and then we'll, there'll be a new body, a new way that our soul interacts with that which is around us. He's talked about the fact that there's power even in these earthen bodies given by the Holy Spirit that we're able to walk through suffering and difficulty. Uh, we've talked in great detail about the idea that it's, we're not trying to avoid suffering as Christians. Uh, we can embrace it uh, in, in Christ. And that he says he's able to work those things that we suffer through for good in us, right? So what's better than just trying to avoid suffering uh, so we can stay happy? And that is to suffer and to be happy, to come out on the other side more like Jesus, right? Now in chapter 5, he's beginning to talk about this. Uh, he begins, I should say, with the reality of this body, once again, is going to perish, and then the new body will come. And it sticks in that same vein of always focusing on heaven, that heaven is always the superior goal. It's always the, uh, the end game, if you will, of God, which is unadulterated fellowship, right? That's what heaven represents. It's not just clouds or musical instruments or something like that, but it's the idea, uh, as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians, that we'll know as we are known, that we'll know Christ in the same way that he knows us, which seems like a dream. It seems like a, an impossibility. But that God's fullness, uh, his, his full goal is complete and utter fellowship. Nothing hidden, nothing unknown, just a, an openness, right? Which I think in the end is what every human longs for, right? It, it's what marriage is supposed to be. It's what, you know, BFFs are supposed to be. It's what, you know, all these things... It's what the, that's what they're supposed to be, but oftentimes they fall short. And yet that, the goal is, as humans, that we would end up in, in heaven with Christ, with one another, with absolutely no, nothing to hide, no shame, sheer joy at our salvation, and uh, just an incredible eternity of fellowship. So as we've gone through chapter 5 here, he says, because we have this, and that's this goal that, that God is working out, that we have become, we looked at last week, we looked at last week, that because of that, we want to be those that serve the Lord, and that we want to be those that uh, are, in a sense, communicating all that God has for us. Now he says here in verse 14 in chapter 5, we'll pick up here for context sake, and then we'll read through that and our text for today. So in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, Paul says this, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation." Uh, the, uh, excuse me, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was uh, reconciling the world to himself in Christ, 
not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now this is, a, I think, some of the most fantastic the six verses of the scriptures that, that, that we're going to cover today. There's, a, there's something in here for every single person, whether there's a person who doesn't know Christ or doesn't know who he is or a Christian who's walking with Christ and just excited about heaven or a Christian who's, who's walking with Christ and not excited about heaven or not excited about walking with him. There's just, these are just profound and awesome verses. And that's just not like I'm trying to do like some sort of pastor introduction. It's the idea that if you consider the truth of what we just read, you consider what this means for us. It's why the gospel is good news. It's why that we can go into the world and say, we have something that heals. It also presents a perspective that's so important to the gospel. And that is that, not, that Christ is not a gatekeeper of heaven. That he's not standing there saying, unless you're good, you can't come in. Like all the, the, the comics or you know, the, the different imagery that's been portrayed throughout the, the, the world. This idea of St. Peter at the gate saying, why should I let you in? That's not who he is. We just read, what is he doing? It says that he's urging people to be reconciled. Think about that for a second. It's not that Christ is a gatekeeper or the Father is a gatekeeper and then he sent Jesus as a loophole for his wrath. But that he actually wants to be with human beings. He's actually, Christ came to the earth invested, you know, in a sense, in the idea to redeem people back to himself, not just to deal with sin. Dealing with sin was the preliminary issue to be able to have fellowship. And so what we see in this, in just these, these few verses here, is that you and I are involved on an endeavor that's incredible. We're not telling people to clean up. We're not telling people to be better. We're not telling people, you know, a million things that we might want to communicate. We're telling people that God reconciled them to himself already, in Christ, and all they have to do is receive it, that he wants to be with them, that he wants them in heaven. So much different than a gatekeeper, so much different than the angry God who got talked off a ledge by Jesus or something like that, but this God that cares and loves and had an entire and a specific purpose in sending Christ, and that you and I now get to be part of that purpose, not to be gatekeepers, not to be out there trying to change everybody's uh, ideas and so forth, but looking for those who are ready and wanting to be reconciled to Christ. And it's a fantastic ministry. So we'll get stuck in here. The end of chapter four, what we, uh, just by review from last week. So Christ's love compels us. So Paul comes to this conclusion that the love of Christ compels them, them being uh, uh, Paul, Timothy, and, and uh, Silas, them being uh, motivated. It's, it's more than motivated. It's like urge. If you compel someone, it's almost like you're, you're pushing them into something. That's what being compelled means. So he says, we're urged. We're compelled by Christ's love. Our motivator, you know, it's not law. It's not anything save the fact that Christ loves him is what he says. And that love that he's experienced has caused him to be motivated to do the right thing. Even when there's times he may not want to do the right thing. He's still motivated to do it because he knows the love of Christ for him. And so that love brought a conclusion that if Christ died, then everyone he died for was already dead or also died. Does that make sense? Now, this is the same idea from Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8. It's the same idea from Galatians 2 and 3. 
This idea is, is, is and Peter shares this idea in 1 Peter 2. This idea is throughout all of the New Testament literature. The idea that because we were going to die and Christ died for us, we were all as good as dead. But then when we believed Christ, the Bible in Romans chapter 6 says we identified with his death. In other words, we said, we may not have mentioned those words, but what we said was when we admitted, I need forgiveness, we admitted I'm as good as dead. I am a sinner and I need what Christ purchased for me. And in that identification with his death, also Romans 6, it says that because of that acknowledgement that we now get to experience his life. Since he died for us, we died with Christ, Romans 6 says. And when he raised from the dead by faith, when we trusted Christ, it says that we raised with him. So now we live in a resurrection life. We now live not by our old nature, by its urges, desires, and all that of the, the old man, the Bible calls it, whether it's the flesh, the old man, uh, the world in the sense of the world system and the way it's, it's been generated through Satan and man's fallen nature, all these things, we're not, that, that may be lingering in us, but the Bible says in Romans chapter 6, it's been rendered inoperative. In other words, we're not a slave to sin anymore. We don't have to do it anymore because now we live with Christ. So we're able to say no to ourselves. So we're, we want to review all that because this is going to all play into what we're talking about this morning. It says in verse 15, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and raised again. So Christ died so that those of us who have decided to trust Christ, that we don't live to ourselves anymore. Is that because he's greedy or he's got big ego? And so therefore he's just like, hey, if I did this for you, you owe me, give me your life. No, although that would probably be appropriate in itself. It's because Christ's life is the best life, right? And any honest individual will say that, right? Anybody who's known Christ and has decided even for a moment to walk with Christ can acknowledge that what he has for us is infinitely superior than our old works and thought process, our anger, our bitterness, our jealousy, right, our anxiety, all those things. His life is so superior. So he says, when I paid for your sin, it wasn't so that now I can have ego and you worship me. It was so that you could now enjoy what he has always enjoyed with his father, fellowship, Love, care, comfort, peace, emotional ease, if we could put it that way, tranquility. That's why he's called you to not live for yourself. And I called me to not live for myself. Because even though the old nature is, is rendered inoperative, guess what? When we walk in that, when we walk in sin, guess what we experience? The results of sin. Right? Having the Holy Spirit in us and being Christ when we sin does not change the, the, what happens if we walk in it. So he says, I don't want you to walk in that anymore. Again, not as a, an angry gatekeeper, a cosmic killjoy, but as someone instead who offers this incredible life that he is now living and we can partake in it. So then in verse 16, where we jump in today, he says, so from now on, so because of everything we've talked about, the exchanged life uh, from death to life in Christ, the, the fact that you know, we're, these bodies are dying, the, the new bodies won't, the fact that we're in uh, earthen vessels, but we have this incredible treasure of the knowledge of God, the fact that uh, even though we suffer, that God's glory has been working out in us. You know, so all this whole time, this, this human life, you know, real life with Christ. Human life, real life with Christ. So because of everything we've talked about, this is the conclusion Paul comes to. He says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. 
Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but he's making this point. He says, because of all this reality of what God does in our lives, that we actually become part of this new creation in Christ. He says, because of that, we regard no one. Your, your uh, English translation may say, uh, we, we don't regard anyone according to the flesh or after the flesh, right? Because the, the word there where the, the NIV uh, summarizes it, which I'm reading out of the NIV, NIV, it summarizes it by saying, we don't look at anyone uh, through the world's standards or eyes anymore. It, the, the literal would be, we don't look at anyone's flesh anymore. <laughs> so the, all the NIV is trying to expose the thought there a little bit. So what Paul says, because God's doing this incredible work in every single person who's received him, because he wants to do a incredible work in every single person who hasn't received him, when we look at human beings, we no longer look at them just according to the outside. We don't look at them according to their flesh. Now, he's not saying that we don't, we don't use discernment if someone's going to be harmful or we don't use discernment if something that, that, that is around them is, is good or bad. He's not saying that. What he's saying is we look at them through what Christ says. We don't regard just what the world says about that person. We regard them the way Christ looks at that person, what Christ wants for that person. And so while we may not say, hey, we think that your behavior or your thought processes are legitimate or biblical or helpful, we're not going to judge you according to that. Instead, we want to look at you the way and, and consider you the way Christ does. And he makes the point, he says, in verse 16, and this is interesting, he says, though we once regarded Christ in this way. He actually uses two words. Your Bible may say, no, we don't know anyone, or, and we, we once knew Christ. So it's actually two different words here. The first word is for so on, um, uh, in, in verse 16, so from now on we regard, in that sense, the word there is oikonomen, or oikodemon, my Greek is pretty poor, but it's the idea that it's, it's to be aware of, to be aware of someone. When we're aware of people, it's not just from their outside. But the second part, what he says this, though once we regarded Christ in this way, it's a different word. It's gnosko, which is to understand through experience. So one is to be aware. It'd be like if I said, if, if, I'm not a, if I'm not like an oceanic biologist, in English, I would say, well, yeah, I know about the Pacific Ocean. And what I'm saying is, I know it's there. There's some fish in it, some seaweed washes ashore. I'm aware of it. If I were to say in Greek, I gnosko the, the, the Pacific Ocean, what I'd be saying is, I'm infinitely familiar and aware of the ocean. I know what's in it. I've learned about it. I've swam in it. I've dove in it. I've sailed on it. I've done all these things. I, I know it, right? So he says, when we look at other people, we're not, we're not just aware of their flesh anymore, but they have such a higher calling. That there's something so incredible that God has for them. And that's how we relate to people. And then he says, although we did for a time only experience Jesus from his, from his earthly body. He says, but we don't have that experience anymore. Now he's resurrected, right? And that fulfills our, our context from the beginning of chapter 5, right? The whole idea that this body will be put off. And so now Christ has put off his earthly body and he reigns in heaven. And he says, that's not, we don't have just a fleshy relationship or experience with Jesus anymore. Also, because why? We have the Holy Spirit in us, right? So we actually get to experience God's Spirit. And, that, and even in that, it's a metaphor. Because the word spirit all throughout the New Testament is what? It's pneuma, where we get our word pneumatic, right? A pneumatic tool is an air-driven tool. Pneuma just means wind or breath. So it's, it's, it's a metaphoric idea that we have God's 
essence or wind or breath, movement, uh, however you would like to express it, is attached to our souls. We've been sealed, the scripture says. So we don't experience Jesus anymore just through the flesh. Well, we never would have, right? But Paul says we don't experience that anymore. Now we have a new experience with Christ. We have a connection with Christ. We've been sealed by his Holy Spirit. He's speaking to us. He's empowering us. He's, He's wanting to lead us and work and all these great things that the Holy Spirit does for us. And he goes and he says, we don't regard him that way any longer. Verse 17, therefore, so because we don't, because things are different in the way we look at others and the way we understand Jesus, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. So your Bible may say uh, that the is a new creation or right? if anybody's in Christ, they are a new creation. So the, with the verb tenses here, the idea is that Everyone who is in Christ, what is in Christ? Because that can be, it's important to define that. I went to church for a lot of years that described being in Christ meant that you were walking with Christ. But if you go and you read 1 John, you read these, you read pretty much anywhere in the scripture, being in Christ is not whether you're walking with him or not. Being in Christ means that you're a saved individual. It's a reference to Romans 6. It's a reference to 1 Peter 2. It's a reference to all, you know, Galatians 2. If you are in Christ, or 1 John, the whole letter, if you're in Christ, it means that you have died with him and raised with him and now live in his life. And how did you do that? By faith, right? You did that because you said, Lord Jesus, or however you put it, right? Our prayers don't have to be pretty. Oh, God, help me. You know, whatever way, I need your forgiveness, I see my, my moral fight. See, I need you to forgive me. And I need the new life that you have for me. That person is in Christ. So it's, this is a very important idea. So he says, when you're in Christ, the new has come. Or you are a new creature. What's the new creature? The new creature is what we've been talking about. The new life in Christ. The resurrection life in Christ. It says the old is gone. Passed away. Remember, we mentioned it, Romans 6, what does it say? It says that the old nature, uh, and the English says to be done away with, there's different ways they translate it, done away with, um, uh, reckoned, uh, well, I should turn there. I don't want to misquote it here. He says there, Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in his death, a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. So that done away with, literally rendered inoperative. So we still experience the old nature, don't we? It's, I think we experience a lot. You know, when you look at neuroscience and, and neuroplasticity and how it works, don't worry, I'm not going to get weird here. We're just talking about science. But when you look at how it works, like a habit, if you develop a habit like tapping your pen or even thought processes, things that, we, that continually swirl in our minds, ways we think about things, they have, you can actually watch brain scans now and you can see when people are thinking about something, all the different things that light up in their mind. It's incredible. So what a habit is, it's a well-established, basically electrical pathway in your brain. It's a place where electricity has continually traveled in the same location, right? So when you do something out of habit, part of it is physical. And I'm not trying to throw a wrench at it. You know, all, we're, all we're pointing out is that the Bible has always been true. 
Because when the Bible says we're to deal with habitual sin, how do we do it? We do it first by taking our mind captive. That means as soon as something triggers, as soon as we have that thought process, whether it's to go to porn or to go to to alcohol or to go to manipulation or to go to hate or to go to anger, as soon as we immediately want to just go to that place, we respond or react to that place, we have to stop in that moment and say, I don't have to do that. I have the old nature. I have the, the, the pre-programmed brain from a lifetime of, of difficulty or whatever, or even things, you know, that we talk about sexuality. Sexuality, especially if there's been molestation between the ages of five and eight, they, the, the studies seem to show that if you've been molested five times between the ages of five and eight, you experience anxiety, fear. You also experience sexual pleasure as an eight-year-old with confusion, right? That that is when the two hemispheres of your brain are forming, So it's not hard to imagine why a lot of people struggle with sexuality if they've been confused as a child. So there's all these things that come into how how we relate, how we think, and how all these... But the old nature is dead. We're not a slave to that sin nature anymore. We're not a slave to habitual thought processes anymore. We don't have to do those things anymore. We are able to say no, and we are empowered now by the Holy Spirit to say no to those things. And not to mention the the, uh, vast amount of, if you will, I don't want to be crude, but tools we have. We have fellowship. We have prayer. We have, uh, you know, uh, coming to church and hearing the word. We have worship, worship music, right? All these things to now set our minds and to reconsider the things that, that we're entertaining. So we have become a new creation, we're now in Christ with the power to say no to sin. We're now also, this is, and this is so important, and, and I know that this can be debated, and I'm not trying to be a jerk about it. I'll be glad to talk about it afterwards. Every single letter that Paul writes, every one of them, when he comes back and he comes to the, the uh, uh, application section of what he's saying, he always presents it in the same way. He presents it like this. Stop acting like who you were and act like who you are. That's what he says. Stop acting. And even in Galatians where he says, don't you know if you do these things, these people don't inherit the kingdom of God, right? We're familiar with that. If you, and he goes through a list. And then afterwards he says, he, he even says, he says, and such were some of you. So he's telling people don't do those things because they incur judgment. And he says, but you're not that person anymore. And we'll talk more about that. This is really important because there's this lingering, really bad idea in Christianity that Jesus kind of like paid, like, like I got saved when I was 16. And I was basically taught this, that essentially Jesus kind of paid years one through 16. And then now it's up to me to make sure that I live right and I sin the least amount possible. And then if I do good, that Jesus plus me doing good will get me into heaven. Or Jesus plus me confessing a lot will get me into heaven, right? And it's this idea that sin wasn't completely taken care of at the cross. It's this idea that sin is still being imputed to the believer. And the reality is the new creation is a place positionally where the, new belie- the believer is right with God purely and simply upon the merit of Christ. And to say something else is to say that we earn our salvation. That we got saved and then we make monthly installments to stay saved. Like it's rent or, 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 or uh, you know, a home loan. But no, we, we got completely saved by Christ. So he says the old stuff is gone. Who you were all is gone. You are the new creation. 
So it's important. This is in black and white for us, right? I don't know if you're an underliner or a highlighter or a bracketer or whatever you do. The old is gone. It's not stuffed in the closet waiting to come get you when you've been unfaithful. It's gone. Literally means in the Greek, gone. Right? Like not coming back. Done away with. This is, this is, just talk that away for a second. Your old self is gone forever. You are a new creation created by Jesus at his resurrection, and that's who you are in him forever and always. And that'll never change. And then Paul, he addresses it here, and he says this, verse 18, because we might go, well, no, I still need to keep it up. All this is from God. And he actually, he uses that same line in other places. Every time he explains this, he's, this is from God. All this is from God. Every part of it. All the, the creation of man, the, the, the plan after, obviously the plan was established before man fall, but the, the plan that came about after the fall of human beings, all that he did in the Old Testament, all that Christ did when he lived, all this is from God. It's not from us. This new creation, from God. The old thing's gone, from God. All from him. He designed it, he executed it, he sustains it. Our salvation is nothing but purely in his hands. And all he leaves for us is this, he's, he's just, he's appealing, saying, Will you receive it? Will you take this forgiveness? Will you take what I have for you? We are our own worst enemy. We are the only one that can keep God from us. And he's just saying, I, I love you so much. And I, I want you to be part of me and what I'm doing. I want you to share in my spirit. I want you to come and be and have fellowship with me now. And it's in part. I mean, let's be honest. It's, we, we struggle, right? We have an old nature. But we don't have to follow that old nature. So he invites right now. He says, you can have fellowship with me. The joy, the peace, all those things. He says, you can have that with me right now. And one day it'll be permanent and forever, never to wax and wane. That's what he's saying. And he says, this is from God. It's not from us. He goes on there, he says, This is from God, verse 18, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, again, the, the, the verbiage here is interesting because these are all present, for the most part, they're present active verbs, which means it would be like God was always reconciling us in Christ and he continues to always reconcile us in Christ. We are always reconciled. That's why they don't translate it <laughs> that way in English. But it's the idea that he, he did it in Christ he is doing it in Christ, and he's always and never-endingly doing it in Christ. This is, we got to own this stuff, right? If you don't own this, then what do you have? Nothing. You have try harder, be better, do gooder. And then maybe you can feel better about yourself. Maybe you can feel some peace. Maybe you can feel like you're accepted. That's trash. That's not the life that Christ has. You are right with Christ simply because God did something in Christ and is continuing to draw from its power. And now you get to walk with him through that power, that forgiveness that always is and, and will be in Christ. It's, a, it's, it's great news. And if you, if you need that forgiveness, if you need that life today, I would just like to invite you. Don't walk away from it. 
The invitation is always there. And he's actually going to, that's the next thing he's going to say. He says that this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So now here's again the application side. So this is awesome. What ministry do we have as Christians? What's our ministry? Reconciliation. Just above this, Paul said we're compelled by Jesus' love. And the way we applied that last week is we just ask ourselves, when I'm about to type something online, am I being compelled by Jesus' love? If I'm about to share something, a video or something with my friends, am I being compelled by the love of Jesus? Am I doing this because I go, you know what? Jesus loves the people this video is about. Jesus loves the people I'm about to send this video to. Jesus wants all these people to know him and to be reconciled to himself. And the fact that he loves them so much, it compels me to want to do that also. Is that why we're about to comment on someone's post? Is that what I'm about to say to, to a clerk at a store? Is that who I'm, what I'm going to say to the barista that got my order wrong? Right? Is, this, is that what I'm going to say to my spouse that's wronged me? Am I going to be compelled by the love of Christ? And now in this case, he says, we have a ministry. And it's the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, every conversation, every prayer, every time I come to church, every time I go to Bible study, every time I go to my parents' house, every time I go to my kids' house, every time I'm at my house, every time I go to school, every time I go to work, I have a ministry. And it's not to bring everybody into what I think they should do. It's to cry out to them and say, God has reconciled you to himself through Christ. He's not trying to keep you out of heaven. He's trying to bring you in. He's trying to cleanse you of the things that cause the terrible feelings and the destruction in your soul. He wants to deal with that. And any of us who are honest, we'll be honest. We should be honest. It's the physical, the emotional damage we've done to people. How we've treated them or we've manipulated them to get what I want. We are intrinsically selfish to the core. And now God says, you don't have to be that way anymore. Let's be honest about where selfishness has got us as human beings. It's gotten us nowhere. In fact, it's like worse than nowhere. And instead, now he says, you have a ministry. And it's to let people know that that they can be reconciled to God and then to each other. It's It's such a superior ministry, isn't it? It's such, a, it's such a better ministry. Now, we, obviously, we want to see things like abortion stop, right? But we want to see it stop because there's reconciliation. We want to see it stop, and, and we want to let people know that God loves them. There's a lot of things out there that, that we want people to know that, you know what, you can, by having this child, see good come from terribleness. You know, I, I was adopted when I was three months old. I was the product of a one-night stand. My mom was 16 years old, and she had a one-night stand of some dude in Texas who died before I was born. And, and, and I just think to myself, I bet if you ask my kids, do you think something good came out of James being not aborted? They would say, yeah, we're here. That's probably the only good thing, right? <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like, all, I'm not trying to, like, I'm some sort of martyr. I'm not. I was, like, three months old. I had no idea until my parents were like, you were adopted. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. But, you know, the point is that the point is that good, we want good things. We want reconciliation. And we want to help people to be reconciled. And that's the ministry we've been given. It doesn't mean we don't vote our convictions. It doesn't mean any of that. What it means is when I talk about my convictions, I talk about them because I have one ministry. And in talking about my convictions, I want to talk about it because God wants to reconcile people to himself. And he did it all through Christ. And, and we have that good news. 
He's going to go from there. He says, verse 19, here's the reconciliatory (laughs) ministry. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Again, active, perfect active, imperfect active. God was in Christ reconciling and continues to reconcile the world to himself. Right? In Christ. Not in works, not in try hard, not in doing your best. In Christ. That's how it was reconciled. And he says that he was, and he was not counting people's sins against them. Now this is wild because we just don't believe it. Every person who's called upon the name of the Lord, do you know why they're saved? Because Christ, or I should say the Father, imputed our sin. Imputed means, it's in First John, it's all over the place. It's a Christianese word. It just means to deposit in one's account. It's kind of a coin Greek term, accounting term. And so what God did is he took all of your sin, present, past, and future. He took all of the sin of humanity, and he deposited it in Christ's account and held him accountable for everything that we've ever done and everything every human being has ever done. And he crucified Christ. In a sense, it was through times and, and through purpose that it was done and human beings did it but God allowed it and he was crucified on our behalf and when Christ was crucified what became available to everyone who would receive him is that he says he will no longer count your sins against you that's huge you know I don't know if you I have sins that when I think about them it kind of makes me a little nauseous I have things that I, 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 things that I, I think about sometimes and I go, why do I always think this way? Or why do, I, why do I have that kind of wrath in me? Or why do I have that kind of, that, that's in me? Things that I wish were not part of my personality or my soul. And to think, God's not holding that against me. And he's not holding it against you. And I'm not trying to beat a dead horse or be overactive here, but, but, but please, Take this to heart. God does not hold your sin against you. It's a completely foreign thought to us, isn't it? Especially as pull ourselves up by our bootstraps Americans. The idea that somebody does something for me or that somebody gets something for free, it can enrage us. But the reality is that in Christ, that's what we are, right? We're in Christ. Your sins are not imputed to you. So when you go out, you know, if you go out here today and, 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 and you're driving down the road and someone immediately slams on their brakes because they see, like, you know, the mattress of their dreams on the side of the road for $5, and you want to scream out, God bless them, right? <laughs> Not imputed against you. It'll have a fruit, right? If, I, if I'm driving home today and I'm with my daughters and I, you know, get frustrated over driving, I'm like, come on, what are these, what's wrong with these people? That'll have a fruit, won't it? It'll train my kids, one, that I'm an angry man. It'll train them it's okay to be angry. It'll train them that they can look down on other people. There's a million bad things that'll happen from sin every time. But you know what one of them isn't? That it's imputed to you. That you get charged for it. If that were the case, if our weird, obscure ideas about the cross and what it meant, if it really meant... That sin could still be imputed to us. 
then you would literally have to confess the moment of your death or you would go to hell. That's what it would mean. But the reality is that God was in Christ reconciling to this very day the world to himself through that one sacrifice through his blood. And now you and I, through, by faith in that, in that sacrifice, our sin is never to be charged to us again. It was all paid for in Jesus. And he goes on and he gives us another metaphoric statement, one of the most tremendous uh, metaphoric statements in the end. Well, I should read verse 20. We're just out of time. Verse 20 says this, For we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So we have that, that same thing, that same ministry. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So this is a bit of a, an interesting statement. Because Paul brings it to a, a, a radical, extreme idea. Jesus, who had never sinned, never known in the sense of experienced his own sin, because he didn't sin, who was holy, who was set apart from sinners. So all the, all the, the adjectives we have and the descriptions we have of Christ that that one that was separate and holy from sin, Paul says, was made to be sin. And I don't think that means that, 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 his, that somehow God became sin. The idea is that he bore, and, and it's expressed other ways, that he bore in his body, Peter would tell us, that he bore in his body all the sin of humanity. But, he, but Paul says it this way, he became sin. He, he took it all. There, there's no more intimate relationship than that, right? If you internalize something. He internalized all sin for us, every sin for us. He took it all at Calvary. And he did that, why? So that we could become the righteousness of God. So there's two extremes there. The one who absolutely knew no sin became meshed together, if you will, with sin in his body. So that those of us who knew no righteousness Right? Paul says we're, we're, our throats were like open sepulchers. Nothing but death and rot comes flying out of our mouth before Christ. They're selfish. We're self-serving. We knew nothing of righteousness. We knew nothing of righteous motives. That we could actually become the extreme again. Be God's righteousness. Amen. Amen. You have nothing to fear about your forgiveness. It was established in Christ. Any guilt and shame that you feel, it's not from God. He's not guilty and shaming people. If you think you feel God's wrath on your life as, an, as a, a believer, you don't because he told, we're told to the, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he has not destined us for wrath. You may feel God's discipline because he loves you. If you're his child and you're doing your thing, or I'm his child and I'm doing my thing, God is so good. He's like a good parent. A good parent that says, no, I'm not going to let you have donuts for breakfast every day. Right? We would equate that to be a bad parent, right? Or a, 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 we would equate a bad parent that says, just go do whatever you want. It'll be fine. Go play in the street. It'll be fine. No, he's a good parent. So we may be experiencing him wanting to move us back to himself. 
but it's not wrath, it's not shame, it's love. It's his care. So he's inviting all of us. So we have some communion this morning, and I want to invite you uh, to partake of it. Jesus told us, he said, you know what? It's awesome, too, because if you remember when he gets there, or he's in the upper room, and when the kind of the, 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 the Passover supper begins, and they kind of get to this portion of it, he says, it is with desire I have desired to eat this with you. I mean, think about that. The night that Jesus is about to betrayed, be betrayed by Judas, he tells these, these 12 guys, who are these? Well, you have Peter. I mean, he's got a pretty substantial anger issue, right? You have Thomas who just is, gets dramatically hurt and is, you know, says, I'm not going to believe unless I throw my hand, thrust my hand into his side. This guy was a ragtag gang, right? People that they, they didn't really understand death and resurrection. They didn't understand you know, a lot of the things that he's talking about. We know that in the Gospels. And yet Jesus' response to them is, I could not wait to have this Passover meal with you. I really wanted to be with you guys. And then he goes on from there and he says, in fact, I'm not going to eat of the bread and the cup again until we do it all together in heaven. Isn't that wild? That he said, I'll go without as a testimony to my love for you. And he goes, but I want you to do this. And he says, when you guys do this, uh, when you take the bread, I just want you to remember my body that was given for you. He says, I gave my body for you. My whole life, all that I am, it was for you because I love you. Not condemnation. It wasn't like, so get your stuff together, Peter. It wasn't that, that wasn't the heart of it, was it? It was, I want you to remember me, to remember, to be comforted by me. Not to be condemned, you better remember me. <laughs> no, to comfort, not, not condemn. And then he says, I want you to remember something else. Because for their whole lives, they had, they had taken the Passover dinner. And it was all about the, the deliverance from Egypt. That's what it was all about, the deliverance from Egypt. And the coming Messiah. And so Jesus changes the whole thing. And he says, now when you drink this cup, I want you to remember there's a new testament, a new covenant. What's a covenant? It's not a contract. A contract is if you do this, then I'll do this. So if you don't do this, then I'm not going to do this, right? We don't have a new contract with God. We have a new covenant where Christ just said, I'm going to pay for your sins. You can receive it if you would like. It's a free gift. He says, I want you to remember there's a new covenant. It's not the old covenant of the law. Do and live. Try hard. He says, no, no, no. It's a new covenant, completely new. In other places, he talks about it's, it's the old wineskin. It's new wineskins. It's a new garment. Everything about it is new. He says, I want you to remember there's a new covenant in my blood. All these things are of God, right? And so when we partake today, if you're a believer in Jesus, be at peace. Paul says, let's search our hearts. Is it so we can be forgiven? No, it's, it's to try our motives. And it's an opportunity to say, Lord, I want to remember you. I want to I glorify you. But if there's something in me that needs to change, will you show me that? In the Corinthians, it was a little bit different there because they were, they were ruining some testimonies. And so there were some consequences to follow that. And we're not necessarily talking about that today. But today you have the opportunity to partake and to remember and to rejoice. And I encourage you to do that. If you're new with us, really, you know, what we ask people to do is just kind of, uh, kind of circle around and make the line up front so that that way uh, it doesn't get kind of pandemonium. Um, so we can try to do that. Let's pray, huh? Father, thanks for the bread and for the cup. Thank you for these incredible truths and the fact that you've given us also a ministry to communicate incredible truths. Lord, would you please help us to go into this world 
and to, to be a blessing with your word. Help us to, to be like you, where the common people can hear us gladly. Lord, help us to, to go to those and to find those that are uh, ready and, and willing for your gospel. Lord, we thank you for being so kind. You've been very good. We appreciate it. In Jesus' name, amen.